Hi there. I hope you find great value in the episode that I'm about to share with you. Before we start, I want to thank you for your precious attention and take this opportunity to invite you to consider joining my next Entrepreneur's Awakening Mastermind program. I'm only accepting eight business leaders and it's filling up fast. If you're curious, visit awakeforward.com right now to learn more and apply to join. Okay, on with the episode. I had to go through that life and death battle and lose before the ego would eventually let go. From that point on, the trajectory of my life changed and I have been living differently ever since. Right? You have to be able to step aside from your ego to know that there is a ego. And once you then can do that, then all your future decisions are always starting with the question, oh, is that actually me who wants that or is that my ego talking? A Harvard Business Review study shows that greater than 50% of venture-backed startup founder CEOs fail due to two reasons, co-founder conflict and immature leadership. While I agree that this is likely true, there is also a seldom discussed deeper cause, ego. On one hand, if your ego isn't strong enough, you will fail. On the other hand, if it's too strong, you'll also fail. So how does one become the master of their ego and maintain a winning balance? You're about to hear from three veteran founder CEOs who successfully reset their relationship with their ego by undergoing an ego death and rebirth experience. Keller Crawford's ego reset was accidental. He actually died when his motorcycle was struck head on by a van. When resuscitated, his ego is reborn as a humble servant, changing his orientation to life and business forever. Bertram Mayer and Henrik Zilmer both experienced their ego resets through ayahuasca, an Amazonian plant medicine containing psychedelic compounds. I want you to hear both their stories because their experiences couldn't have been more different, but the results were the same a total reorientation toward life and business. In this episode, you will learn what the ego death and rebirth experience was like for each of them, how it changed their approach to business leadership, and their best practices for maintaining a healthy relationship with their ego. While the stories you're about to hear are emotionally rich and very entertaining, I actually created this episode to inspire you to consider the role that you are allowing your ego to play in your life. Is it your master or servant? Are you overdue for an ego reset? Let's find out. One last thing before we start. I must make something very clear. Everything shared in this podcast are just personal opinions. I am not a medical professional, and when sharing my opinions, I'm not providing medical advice. My guests, even if they are medical professionals, are also sharing their personal opinions and not providing medical advice. You should always formally consult a licensed medical professional before you decide to engage with any of the approaches we discuss on this show. Thank you for understanding this. Okay, let's get on with the episode. So... Welcome, guys, and thank you for doing all it took to coordinate us being here together today. I really appreciate it. 
Our pleasure. Awesome. My pleasure. pleasure to be here. Thank you, Thanks Michael. for inviting us. I'm really happy to have brought the three of you together because you have very unique backgrounds, but there's a lot of overlap. You have a lot in common. You're all three venture-backed or investor-backed startup founders. You all three have very strong wills, in my estimation, type A, highly ambitious entrepreneurs. You've all founded startups and you've all come into conflict and through that, a new relationship with your egos. And what I'm wanting to explore today is what is the right relation to the ego for an entrepreneur? And I think we're going to get at that, not because we're some kind of experts on it, but just through discussing our personal experience with ego death and then the ongoing conscious relationship that you guys hopefully maintain with your ego after your experience. So I thought I would start by just asking each of you to share your ego reset, your ego death. What was that experience like for you? And then how long ago was that? And what changed in the months after? And given where your life is today, what would you say the impact has been on that shift? So Keller, why don't we start with you? Tell us about your experience of ego disillusion. Happy to. Yeah, my story was such a formative and pivotal moment for me, as I think any big awakenings are. I was doing some business in Bali and had been actually living there. So um, just kind of hammering away, building like a maniac my business, which was sort of the blueprint I had coming out of my 20s, where I had founded another company. And I was in Indonesia. I had just delivered a job for Paramount over there and was kind of wrapping everything up. And two o'clock in the morning, I went out to get a phone card so I could call my contact in LA who was going to pick up a shipment from me. And then my partner at the time said, please don't go out. I just said, I'm just going to go grab a phone card. So I went, picked it up and I was heading toward home, missed the turn. I was driving a motorcycle. And as I'm coming back around the turn to go to my house, this van comes screaming around the corner out of its lane and into my lane. And I've got two places I can go. I can either go off the road or directly into the van and off the road is straight into a brick wall. And by that time that I'd made that calculation, it was too late. I had to kind of sidle up and hit the van square in the middle. Hold on a second. Yep. Did time slow down? Because we hear these stories about these moments where you're facing your death and you have to make a choice and there's a time dilation that happens. What was that like <laughs> in those seconds before you had to make that decision? This is funny because I was just thinking about this moment from Bugs Bunny the other day where you know Elmer Fudd comes up on him and he's in a really tight spot and you kind of see Bugs Bunny go, think fast, rabbit. And so... That was more like that, right? Time didn't slow down, but all systems came online for sure. And I keep going back and playing that over and over again. The calculations that were happening on every cell in my body to minimize damage. And there was a lot of luck. And then I credit the supercomputer of the neural system for doing whatever part was mine. But yeah, it was crazy. Somehow this van hit me and sent me 
flying backward, tumbling, hit me so hard that it blew the helmet off my head, broke the strap. um, And I remember tumbling all different flavors of impact and then nothing for a second. And then coming to my feet, having one leg sort of give until I realized that I can't put pressure on that because it's broken. And then it was sort of the Spielbergian moment with the van's headlights on me through all this smoke the front of the van crushed in like a Coke can with two thumbs kind of crushed in through the middle. And I was just staring right into the windshield and I must've looked like bloody murder, but the folks in the van slammed on the gas and squealed like they were going to peel out and then slammed on the brakes then slammed on the gas again, slammed on the brakes. It was like there was two people driving. I'm imagining it was terror and concern at once. And then they peeled off and left me in the rice paddies at 2.30 in the morning alone. And so, yeah, and I'm kind of sitting there now by myself, just shrapnel everywhere from... Is it pitch black? It was dark, but it was starlit. And I remember looking up at the stars and going, this is bad. And then there was a moment that hit me right after that that said, fuck, this is dying. This is happening to you. And then I said, oh God, okay. And I was bleeding heavily. And I went up and I touched my head, but I didn't like what it felt like. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. So I was running diagnostics on myself. Like what is happening? How bad is this? And then I sort of assessed that I was fading, right? I was looking at the stars and everything started fading. Right. Mm -hmm. It was like an LCD screen that was just losing power and the colors were flattening and I could feel myself drifting. And I said, okay, well. What was the emotion like? Were you crying? It was pretty sober. Every bit of my attention was vitally arrested. I remember thinking, uh, thank God it didn't go out like a light. I am at least here to live this last moment. And this was kind of the dialogue. There's no way out of this. It's done. And so I have to make this last moment of my life. um, I want to show up for it in in a way that honors the life that I had at all. So I I use that time to really run back through and assess how hard I've laughed, (laughs) how uh, fortunate I've been to see beautiful places around the world, have a family that loves me, have good friends that love me and that I love and have had great love stories. In that moment, so much came to me that I immediately stopped and just said to myself, I've had more than my share of beauty and positivity. And in fact, it didn't make any sense how I could feel entitled to another moment. Mm. Right. And so I... So much that, gratitude. It really was that. And, and then the next thing was, well, what can I do from here? And this is all in a span of 10 minutes or less? Hard to tell. Hard to know. A timeless stretch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the next piece was, well, what can I do? And then I thought, you know, and then I went to magical thinking, right? So it's like uh, maybe growing up as a Catholic, uh, maybe other experiences I've had in my life that have felt magical, like where I've thought of somebody I haven't talked to in in 10 years and and I went to call them in the instant I was calling them, they were calling me. 
like multiply that by hundreds of those kinds of experiences where I've reached to make a note. Like it's not all totally linear. And I kind of tapped in there and I said, I know there's something connecting us. I know there's some kind of Wi-Fi in the sky among living beings. And I'm not subscribed to any kind of mythology, but I have had my own empirical experiences that have led me to think there's something. And so I said, okay, if there's something, then I'm going to pull it all together right now. I'm going to use my will to concentrate all that's left of my life to transmit a message, which was for me, I want to reach the people that I love and that love me because tomorrow they'll hear about this they'll be mourning my death. And so let me send this message. And it was, I love you. I'm with you. I am okay with this. It is not a tragedy. It is not sad. It is only the end of my life. And my life has been beautiful. So Mm -hmm. it was one of peace. It was one of calm. And I just concentrated into a ball, kind of detonated this prayer and sent it out. And that was my last act. That was my goodbye. That was all that I needed to do in life. And yeah, clearly there was more to the story than that. Because you're here. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm here. But but oh, way- wow, I'm so enraptured in hearing this, and I'm like on the verge of tears, but in a more of a joyful, like I don't know, it's a strange quality of of awe, I guess, that I'm feeling right now. That's really precious. Um, That was a precious moment and certainly singular for me. Uh, But the next point like that was waking up the next morning, right? To me, there was some things that happened in between. I was kind of shuffled around in between hospitals. Surgeons were flown in. I was all quite hazy for that. At what point did your consciousness come back online? I remember waking up, somebody showed me a mirror at some point, and I was just completely misfigured. And I remember my heart was just overflowing. And there was a kind of a sermon that like, I guess my subconscious was kind of piecing together of the time that had led up to this moment and what it meant. But Keller's dead. There's no more me. Any validation that I had ever sought Anything I ever needed to to achieve, I showed my dad that I could do it. And I showed my friends that didn't believe in me that I could do it. And the ones that did believe in me, they were right. All those ego stories. But in that moment, it was Keller's dad. What do you want with me? And not like I'm talking to some you know bearded God, but what can I do here with this life that is meaningful beyond me? And that was the only thing that mattered. And so there's this distinct point of, of surrender. Surrender for me was on my tongue and it, and it opened up like a sunrise, you know, surrendering myself, surrendering my ego to this network of life that is here on earth that I have the opportunity to affect in a meaningful way that reduces suffering, that increases quality of life. And that ultimately might, you know, be a drop in the bucket, but who cares how little or much toward reinforcing the best of humanity. The essence of it I'm hearing is this 
total dedication to service. It was absolute in that moment. And I just remember being like, I have no use for this life anymore Mm. because I've had a beautiful life. And that gratitude that I felt there on the road bowled me over. It was Mm. enough to check out on. And so the whole rest of my life since then, I've kept that really close to my chest. It informs everything I do. There's a lot that this has continued to inform about the way that I see and relate to ego. So as a result, are you able to recognize the shadowy aspects of your ego more easily than before? You can see it. Yeah, I disidentified with myself and then identified with my belonging to something bigger beyond myself, you know, humble. But I think that you said it earlier when you're talking about an ego reset, like this idea of an ego death the momentary thing, but it's not like your ego is ever going to die. It's made it so that when I see it rear its head or, you know, you, you do something and you get credit for it and then people want to cheer you, there's a moment where your ego may or may not have a meal, right? It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to attribute that to me. And then a healthy relationship, I think, with ego is the ability to go, oh, that's happening right now. And I don't value that. And so, you know, I'm going to kind of give it a nod and say, I'm not going to judge myself for that because it's natural, but I'm going to put it in its right place. And it's a continual process. I just thought of a good example to ask you about. So you're going through the process of raising a Series A for your current company. That's always a humbling process, right? It's one of the most difficult things a first-time venture-backed founder has to to accomplish. And working with many clients through that process, it's always a big blow to their ego because, you know, you got to get your 70 no's before you get your yes. And I'm wondering how you think your ego reset, your current relationship with your ego has maybe made that easier for you? For sure. I'm sure on some level, I think, I mean, I've had so many rejections that at this point in rejection, learn why, and then be productive with that. Yeah. As I know you, your ability to stay highly functioning in extraordinarily humbling circumstances is extraordinary, as well as your commitment to see the birth of this vision for your new company that is an extension of your commitment to service in this lifetime is extraordinary. I can't imagine you being able to do all that I've seen you do over the last couple of years if you hadn't had this experience I'm wondering what you think. Yeah, there's a conviction that came out of it, right? With this distilled truth that's really informed my whole MO, my whole lens. And it's so clear and it feels so true to me that I can always come back to that and refuel by linking into those truths. And that makes life easier. It makes it easier for me to go back and... And, and say, you know, this is not about me. It's not about what happened today. This is about what I'm here to do. And it can continue to learn, you know, is this venture in alignment with that thing that I promised myself was important? And if it is, keep going. And if I ever got to a point where I realized that I had gone down a path that was not in alignment with that, then mm-hmm. it's okay. Without a lot of ceremony, then what is the mission? 
And so I've only continued to get green lights. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know I just said that I've had more rejections. <laughs> yeah. Green lights, not in the sense that it's been easy street, but green lights in that when you check in against the resistance you're finding in the world, your inner gut check or spirit check is, is green. Epic story. As I was listening to you and thinking about our theme today, knowing that for Henrik and Bertram and, and myself, it was through ayahuasca that we had our near-death experiences. But listening to your story, Cal, I can tell that there are degrees of ego death and disillusion and reconstitution. And I don't know that one could achieve the depth of experience that you did through psychedelic plant medicines. So I'm wondering if one of you is willing to jump in. What did you learn from your ego death experience? Well, this is Bertram. First, I want to comment on Keller. I was so moved by this share and so deeply appreciative of your ability to make it so vivid and relatable. And honestly, asking myself, if I was in a death situation today, would I have the same peace with my life, the same joy, the same transmission of love to everybody that loves me and for the greater life that holds us? And I think that's something to strive for. And I am honored to be here with you. And thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Bertrand. It's my pleasure. I'd like to give you credit. I think when you're going into psychedelic spaces, you have to be really brave to do that. You have to kind of have that warrior spirit that you're going to surrender the normal way of thinking and being. And you don't know if you're ever going to come back. I mean, there's always the chance that when you go surrender yourself to plant medicine, that you don't know what's going to happen. And I can only imagine what real death is like, but I think maybe there's a parallel. Hi there. Please excuse this interruption. But I want to take this opportunity to invite you to join the next Entrepreneur's Awakening Mastermind program. As I said before, I'm only accepting eight business leaders and it's filling up fast. So if you're curious, visit awakeforward.com right now to learn more and apply to join. Okay, back to the episode. Mm -hmm. So Henrik, I'm curious what comes up for you hearing Keller's story. Yeah, no, it's a really crazy story. Uh, and I think it's very difficult to relate how that experience must have been standing on that dark road, reaching a point of peace with the world and with everyone in life, and then simply letting go or knowing that this, this is it. So yeah, brave of you to share it. Yeah, so like the whole story from the beginning, of course, I've always been kind of intrigued with whatever is there must be more to life or at least been curious to that. And I think that has also driven me to be a pioneer in terms of entrepreneurship, start companies, convince people to help me achieve some common goal and pursue all these big things in life. And that curiosity has also been towards Things that I didn't know anything about, but I would like to uh, explore and that then also being psychedelics. So from, I would say, early 20s, when I heard people talking about different psychedelics, this was something I knew or I had a calling towards trying at some point. And that also was what led me eventually to find myself lying in a temple in the mountains in Peru, looking up at the stars and for the first time drinking that small little cup of what felt like liquid tobacco but worse. And then 20 minutes in, 
as one of the first in that circle actually immediately feeling sick and grabbing my bucket and for the next two hours being lost in time and space and vomiting, purging, shaking uncontrollably and feeling a complete sense of despair and being in between different dimensions, but slowly feeling that life was being pulled out of you and that there was no energy left. Henrik, so you were in a ceremony and you were going through this struggling experience, which we call ego resistance. And then eventually it just wore you down and you gave in to death. Was that what happened? My experiences with ayahuasca, I recall it as being something where your entire body finally gives in or gives up, right? So it's a release. Picture all your cells in your body, you know, maybe giving each other a handshake and reaching a point in that experience where you have gone through hours of fighting for dear life and then eventually losing that battle. And when you finally lose that battle, then that is the time where you then reach the top of the mountain. And all of a sudden, all that hardship climbing all the way up to the top you are rewarded with the most beautiful 360 view of your entire life and the entire world surrounding you but you don't know before you're at the top of that mountain because up until that point you're just struggling without seeing any light at the end of the tunnel uh, so i think at that point the ego lost right my ego that i was aware i could be egoistic usually as an entrepreneur you are but i never really saw my ego as a separate entity within me that was controlling, pushing, manipulating, pulling, all these things. And all of a sudden that ego was put to rest in, in some way as well. From that point on in the experience, it switched, right? Because then it wasn't a fight anymore. I had lost, I had already given up, but I didn't die. I continued to live, but all of a sudden now, the experience has shifted completely from being this dark pull through hell to being complete bliss and heaven and joy and love and compassion, basically. So in a way, once that ego finally mm -hmm. left or was beaten down, then that made room or made space for all this love and compassion that you are overwhelmed with afterwards. And then the rest mm -hmm. of the journey was bliss, was amazing. But I had to go through that life and death battle and lose before the ego would eventually let go. And before I then had mm -hmm. removed that filter that I was walking around with all the time, and I could actually see, right? So now I was at the top of the mountain. Now I could see all the things, all the habits, all the conditioning, the trauma, you know, bad things I've been doing through life and it become very evident. So it was a clear correlation between that ego and clear vision. So it was a life-changing mm. event, right? It was something that from that point on changed the trajectory of my life. And I have been living differently ever since. And I would also say that the fear of death, which I didn't believe I had before this experience, I realized I did have fear of death, right? Everyone has fear of death. And when it comes to the point where you then let go of life, then I would say that fear of death also disappeared a little bit because even though it was absolutely terrifying, then I saw how absolutely beautiful it is, right? So to go from that place to the next, right? I think Ram Das is saying taken off at too tight of a shoe. I, I think that night uh -huh. I actually experienced something similar to witness that transition to something so beautiful that 
even if I were to die tomorrow or get in a car accident or, or whatever it could be, I would be at peace with it. And that's strange for me to say because mm-hmm. uh, I never believed in life after death. Uh, and maybe there isn't life after death or life, at least as we understand life. But there is something after death and, and tapping into that energy or that world, that dimension changed my perception of life. Right. So I don't fear death anymore. I'm happy to take off that tight shoe because I know it is glorious on the other side. And therefore, yeah. you also live life differently. I also understand, like read something afterwards that made a lot of sense that you have two lives here and the second one begins when you realize you only have one and that i think uh, <laughs> made a lot with me because you know after that you realize okay all these things i've been doing for what purpose right for fame for recognition for money all these things that my ego or society or people close to me thought that would bring happiness and it is not right that i now know after starting a lot of companies and raising 50 million and venture capital and having a thousand people work for me with money or more money, happiness didn't arrive. Like it wasn't a stable happiness thing with recognition or like people saying I did a good job. Yes, that made me happy, but only for a short while, right? Then I would just be addicted to it and, and eager for more. So all these things that supposedly success and happiness would go hand in hand, well, they're not. And I think ayahuasca pushed me to realize this much faster. And therefore, I didn't anymore have to pursue all of that and ring the bell at NASDAQ and take my company public and do all these things because that was not me, right? Like I was pursuing it for all the wrong reasons because that yeah. was not me, but that was my ego who wanted all of that, right? And maybe mm. conditioning from before, but it wasn't me who wanted yeah. all that, right? And it wasn't sure not making me happier, right? So I had to recalibrate my whole assessment yeah. of life and live differently right and be more true to myself and i think the ego death experience of ayahuasca accelerated that process and reminded me about who my true self is so forever grateful and it was an awakening for me it really was and i'm curious when you went back to your company after that retreat and had freed yourself of the old form of ego what were some of the things you saw clearly and chose to do differently? And Yeah, it's a good question. And it's actually something that I've reflected a lot more about since then. I would say, uh, first and foremost, what happened uh, in the months after is that I started focusing a lot more about the humans in the company, connecting with them, understanding what their interests, needs, ambition, and if they were happy more so than what was the Mm. interest and the goals of the company. And we need to reach those at all costs, but instead looking more at the people. So that being more compassionate, more empathetic, I also started focusing a lot more on human resources and making our office at the time a a home, somewhere where people really wanted to go and investing a lot more in culture and more of the softer things that typically when you're a fast paced company or startup, then it's more about survival, right? Those are very egoistic, maybe also very masculine values to survive, right? And to attain some position in the market. And you have to really sacrifice a lot to get there. And now that point kind of made also the transition to where we now focus more on, let's make this a great place to work. Let's make people very happy here. Let's make sure we track that so we can see that if someone's not happy, that we Mm -hmm. change things. 
So it, it changed my perspective in the short run on that. And we did a lot of initiatives to change it. And I would say in the long run, from my personal perspective, I then at that point knew that I also had to remove myself from the company as a rational leader, as a CEO, because I was not the person to continue building a thousand person company and onwards because my desires, my creativity were not to grow a big organization, but to get back to the things I loved the most, to my true self, to be in that starting phase of figuring out what ideas could work, how to do it, and to be maybe that pioneer again. So it changed both in the way I managed, but it also changed my ambition for what I need to do. And I gave up on that hunt for becoming the CEO of a company, IPO company. Yeah, the old ego would not have let you step down oh, as CEO definitely. and hire a replacement. But how, how would you know if you are not aware of your own ego, right? Like if you're simply not even questioning your own ego, right? You have to be able to step aside from your ego to know that there is a ego. And once you then can do that, then all of your future decisions are always starting with the question, oh, is that actually me who wants that or is that my ego talking, right? That's a great segue to Bertram. Thank you, Henrik, for sharing all that. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Henrik. That was super moving as well. I, I really enjoyed being on that ride with you of how that one night in a temple in Peru took you from fight and resistance to surrender to bliss and how you have embedded that in your life and your philosophy about death and, and management and, and what it means to live a fulfilling life. Thank you. Yeah, that was awesome. I'm also totally marveling at the kind of three completely different, unique trajectories that we're having. Keller, who had this death experience, physical death experience. You, who had this very intense battle experience in ayahuasca. And mine is totally different. I am a serial entrepreneur as well. I had made the choice to have 95% of my life energy go towards Talia. Your company, yeah. And it was everything. And so there was only a really small splinter of me available for maintaining my health and functioning in relationship. And that was not enough. And so I want to just honor how I co-created it. Now, it didn't make the dark night of the soul any easier because it came in addition to spending all the energy on the company. The imbalance in your life that naturally comes with running a company, founding a company, bringing a company from zero to life yeah. is massive. And it's going to trigger all kinds of trouble. But if you see it as your personal growth opportunity, as a founder CEO, you're like a goldfish in a small goldfish ball. There's nowhere to hide. Everybody sees your shit. You have the investors above yeah. looking down on you. You have your peers and co-founders looking at you directly. And then you have the employees that are seeing you from this direction. Then you have your personal life relations. And yeah. as a result of that, you can suffer terribly. But with the right mindset, you just see it all as fuel and opportunity for transformation and growth. If you can surrender enough 
to allow for that to be a part of the equation as you're going through it. Yeah, I mean, conscious entrepreneurship is a high growth journey. And it took me till age 37, I think, was my first psychedelic experience. And that was ayahuasca. It wasn't a battle at all. I was laying there. I didn't quite know what to expect. And the shaman invited people to sing. And I was like, I don't have a great voice. That's not for me. And suddenly there was this voice in my head it wasn't me, it was she, and she was vast. And she was like, but would you like to be the instrument tonight? And I was like, yes. And she asked me, will you surrender? And I said, yes. And she said, I will teach you surrender. And in that moment, I felt like the back of my skull was lifted away. And this beautiful, powerful entity came filling my body and filled me to 90%. So I was kind of squeezed in that little corner somewhere. 90% of what was in me was not me. And the fantastical thing was it didn't even end there. Then I put my attention to the back of my skull and I felt like the entire galaxy was like continuing as the back of my head or as the whatever energy body of whatever entity had come into me. Wow. Now that sounds kind of weird or intense, but it yeah. led to the most beautiful experience of my life to that point. First, I had to just laugh. I mean, it was so absurd. I just had to laugh and I was a little bit shy about it. My little 10% we're like, you're not supposed to just burst out laughing in the middle of your first ceremony. But she was like, no, nothing bad has ever come from genuine laughter. Laugh away. And so I rolled and giggled and laughed and tears came out of my eyes. And as the laughter abated, suddenly I was in this dark space. And it was so warm and loving. Love radiated from every side, mm. inside and out. And it was almost like as if liquid love filled every cell of my body. Bliss, total and utter bliss. Like there was nothing to do. Everything was perfect. I was mm. perfect. The world was perfect. Everything was love. I was love. I was being loved. It was like, there was just, <sighs> wow. Now it took me a while to understand that my journey was actually that of life's journey. The laughter was orgasm and the next stage was I was in the womb. And funnily, my ayahuasca experiences since have unfolded, like kind of I had early childhood, I have a manhood initiation ceremony. It was a life journey and this is how it started. And it was the most wondrous, beautiful experience still to date of my life that I can remember. I assume that this is how I felt in my mom's womb, but I have no direct way of accessing that memory. So this was really a gift and a blessing to be able to relive that. And I could talk much more about that. And one super interesting thing that happened in that ceremony a little bit further down the road was she gave me visions of what my life, my soul's journey is about. And it was very nature, treehouse, intentional, conscious community. It was kind of assembling a tribe of people who live in presence and love. And my 10% threw up this objection. I was like, no, I have like this company, it's called Talia. And we have, I don't know how many people, whatever, 70 employees we had at the time or something. And I'm responsible and, you know, their salary and mortgages and visas depend on me and I kind of run after something else. 
And she mm-hmm. asked me, hmm, responsibility. Where do you feel that in your body? And I was like, I think I feel it in my belly. And then she was like, well, focus on it. How does it feel now? And I was like, oh, it's getting denser. It's like gaining in gravity. It's almost like it's focusing itself. And how is it now? And in that moment, I projectile vomited it into the bucket. <laughs> projectile vomited? Yeah, literally. And I sat there and I look into the bucket and I realized that my concept of what I was about and who I was and meaning and what I was gonna do and It was all in the bucket. And I remember a helper came to exchange the bucket and I would not let go of the bucket. It took me, I think I sat there and I looked for an hour and a half into the bucket and I cried and I was with the like, now what? I was like, what just happened? I just, how, what? Yeah, that was that. And I'm just adding one little tiny piece again later in that ceremony, which explains why I'm here. Her and me talked about technology and she said, well, there comes a time when technology becomes a multiplier for consciousness, becomes a multiplier for awakening, and then everything happens very, very fast. And so my hope is that by us sharing our stories, it becomes a multiplication, not of felt-sensed experience, but of inquiry maybe into that. So Bertram, would you consider that the ego dissolution that gave you a new relationship to your ego as a CEO and founder? Well, so the interesting thing is that both Keller and Hendrik had like kind of very marked one moment in time moments. And my ego disillusion is a journey and it started in 2010 and it's still ongoing and it feels almost like literally dissolving something out of me or maybe waking something up in me. And that's where I want to hone in a little bit. This was a later ceremony with actually you, Michael, in Peru, in Javier's temple. And I had my manhood initiation there. And it was a profound ceremony where she made me face all my fears from sharks attacking me to lying in a sea of my own pee with all the schoolmates and teachers looking at me while I'm like four years old. And as I'm shameful, the pee started rising and I started shrinking till till the point of almost drowning in my own pee. And so there were all these fears that we went into. And in that ceremony, I don't know at what point we also, her and me, discussed ego. And what she said And for me, this is really important because so much of the thing that I hear about ego death and struggle, et cetera, is casting ego into this real negative role, maybe involuntarily. But for me, here's what she said. We humans, humankind, are truly beings of pure love. We're built for and capable of limitless compassion empathy and generosity. And in those moments when we're able to connect to our true self, we can all feel that. And honestly, how beautiful because Keller connected to that when he sent his love out thinking he was going to die. And Hendrik connected to that in the ceremony on the top of the mountain. And that's the true self. Now, that true self is in a way 
at risk of self-destruction because it's so pure and so loving and so open that it's provided with a helper, the ego, whose sole purpose is to ensure our self-preservation. It's what keeps us safe. It's what ask the question, are you safe? Are you cold? Are you hungry? What do you need? Do you need more of this? Do you need more of that? Like what environment is conducive to you? And really what I think the process is of spiritual maturing is that we wake up in our loving nature. And as we wake up, as we kind of come out of the slumber, we're asking ego to step aside and take a secondary role. So instead of having our life run by ego as the actor, kind of pretending that it's us, we get to awaken and ask, hey, ego, thank you. I love you. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for keeping me safe. And now that I am awakening, I would like you to start to take guidance from me. It's safe for me now to live more a life of service and become more an emanation of love because I am mature enough to also care for myself. It's not a one-time thing where I hit a switch and then everything was different, but it is a practice that right now is so alive for me because it's a practice in everything now. I can't take responsibility for others, but I can take responsibility for how am I co-creating this situation right now? What's my responsibility? What can I forgive myself and the other for? What can I learn? What I, can I be sorry for? How can I change? What is this doing? And interestingly, what I found is life gives us these repeating lessons. And sometimes they're painful and sometimes they're hard. And it's the moment that we step into the inquiry what are you really trying to tell me? I'm open to learn it. I'm open to see it. And when we let the learning land, you don't get that experience anymore. That brings you forward to the next experience, almost like a video game. You would get promoted yeah. to the next level. You don't need to play this level anymore. It's um, been my experience as well. As you're describing it, it feels very aligned with how I experience it. I also want to just interject a bit on the simplest metaphor that you just beautifully gave very easy way to remember is before, like maybe through childhood and adolescence without an initiation, you go into adulthood where your ego is running the show, your helper yeah. is running the show. But after an initiation, and that could take many forms, in our case, we're talking about ayahuasca or a near-death experience, there's some form of initiation where the relationship gets reversed. Yeah. So yes, we don't want to demonize the ego. I love playing with my ego. It's like a puppy, but it has to serve my higher consciousness. I can't be in service to my ego. And that's the switch. We go from serving the ego to ego serving our life purpose. And the trick is developing and maintaining enough meta consciousness to know. And it's never crystal clear in my case. There's patterns and trends sometimes throughout a day, sometimes throughout a week, sometimes throughout a month where I recognize ego getting out of balance and then resetting and balancing it again. Yeah, Kel, I know you said you wanted to share something coming up for you. I'm just kind of looking at the pattern that Bertram was just referring to where, I mean, you said earlier, I don't know if plant medicine can replicate an ego death in the same you know, intensity. What I'm seeing is a really distinct pattern. Like it wasn't being hit by a car that precipitated my experience. It was the letting go. Right. It was the surrender. And anyone 
that does that is what's happening there in that surrender is a ceasing of clinging. Yes. Right. And so there's a detachment. And when you detach it, all the connective tissue between ego and, and self tears. And now those two parts can function distinctly, independently of one another. And forevermore, you have two parts of self and one that can function in a very healthy way in relation to the other. It's striking that all the parallels here are depicting a process of the detachment and then the ability to have those two parts of ourselves function as separate organs in, in a healthy way. Yeah. He, yeah. I want to just super beautifully said. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing Bertram and Henrik and, and your story too, this is something I'm coming away with is that whatever it takes to get you to that place to surrender, whether it's through a struggle, through a physical trauma, or in your case, Bertram, the choiceful surrender result is the same. It's that shift in relationship. And in some cases, the beginning of a relationship with this protector part of us. Looking back on my life, the amount of internal suffering that I experienced before having my own transition with the ego was massive compared to how it's been since this. I don't suffer so much because I'm not attached in so many ways that I was before. And that alone is such a blessing. When I do get triggered, I watch myself create it. And then I look for the gift mm. hidden in that. Yeah, It's like, I'm really triggered. I'm really upset. Oh, good. Something's going to reveal itself. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I wanted to add to something that Keller had so beautifully sketched out is when the ego is not you anymore. You're not self-identified as, and it's running the show for you, but you have these two entities and the entity of who you truly are starts to have a wider perspective of community, of service. I just wanted to mm -hmm. connect the dot that it's in that living a life of service, living a life of gratitude and living a life of forgiveness for self and other and compassion, that's also what keeps the ego in right relationship to you mm -hmm. ongoingly. So true. Beautifully put. Mm -hmm. Henrik, I'm curious what comes up for you having been listening listening for some time now. Yeah, no, I, I think everything that you're saying is, is very much spot on because I think the the part about suffering, like if I look at my life and if you look at like most of the people who suffer is because reality is different than their expectations or what the, their ego expects or it just doesn't turn out the way they want or they have carried some pain or suffering from the past and every time it comes up, it triggers it again and you're basically going from one pain to another, right? And it's letting go of that. And that is also a process. So I also understand what Bertram is saying, that this is not a one event occasion. This is something that as you have built up all these deposits of frustration or bad energy, that it takes time to unbundle that and recreate that flow throughout your body where all these things that might have triggered you in the past now is able to pass through your body without any blockages and that you remain, you know, with calm and happy and not leading to a place of suffering. And if, if you're listening to this and this lights up for you, I think that we can all recommend 
the book, The Surrender Experiment, as a really great story illustrating what it's like to shift as an entrepreneur, shift from a place of out to prove what you can do for yourself to a place of total surrendered service and what that path looks like when you live it for 40 some years as the author of that book, whose name's escaping me right now, Michael Singer. Yeah. As he did taking his company from a startup to a, a publicly traded company without any ego agenda through that entire journey of 30 years in his case. So highly recommend that book. He also wrote The Untethered Soul, which is also super powerful. And I heard he has a new one that just came out that's really great. I haven't had a chance to. Yeah, I read that, Living in a Place of Surrender. So that is also great. It huh. goes through the entire world creation from the Big Bang until now and puts your life and everything you think in perspective to what has taken 13.8 billion years to create. And you think you have a say in that? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So everything is perfect right now. Yeah, I felt this was a good time to do two more shout outs here as we discuss kind of spiritual elders that are influencing the journey. One for me for sure was Eckhart Tolle. And he writes, a powerful spiritual practice is consciously to allow the diminishment of ego when it happens without attempting to restore it. For example, when someone criticizes you, instead of immediately retaliating or defending yourself, do nothing. Allow the self-image to remain diminished and become alert to what that feels like deep inside you. For a few seconds, it may feel uncomfortable as if you had shrunk in size. Then you may sense an inner spaciousness that feels intensely alive. You haven't been diminished at all. In fact, you have expanded. And I found that a super mm -hmm. powerful practice. Yeah, that's a great one. What advice would we give to somebody who is interested in having a different relationship with their ego? It's a good question. In the beginning, I was very talkative about the experience uh, and I wanted everyone to have that experience, right? <laughs> but then as I talk more about and talk to people, I also understood that this is not something that I can project over to other people and make them curious. I can, and perhaps it has also convinced some people, but in the day, end of the day, it is a personal journey that people, that you would have to want yourself and say, now it's time, now I'm, I'm going to do it. And I do not want to convince people. So if they ask, I'll explain and I'll tell, but or else I, I won't necessarily bring it up because more, more often than not, I find that other people won't be able to understand what it is that I'm talking about. You're no longer an evangelist. No. Hmm. Thank you, Henrik. It's a good perspective. Yeah. My sense is that there's two ways to embark on the journey. One is life thinks you're ready and throws you something like Keller's motorcycle accident. And another one is you think you're ready. And then in that case, when you're feeling called not to prove something, but as an inquiry or as a calling, I can only highly recommend embarking on a plant medicine journey in a sacred container with a clear intention. I mean, the intention mm -hmm. does not need to be an outcome. It can be a reveal my true self, increase my capacity to love, or I don't know, help me forgive or whatever it is, whatever. but a clear intention. 
And then the thing I want to encourage is the absolute trust in the plant medicine wanting your health, wanting your well-being. And so I think the more we can trust, the less we need to struggle. Thank you, Bertram. What comes up for me as somebody who's had the honor of preparing and guiding more than 50 entrepreneurs through their first experience with ayahuasca, if someone came to me and said, I really want to work on managing a new relationship with my ego, I'd like to have an ego dissolution experience, where do I begin? I would recommend that they read some key books in order to intellectually grok the frameworks of ego and to start using mental tools to map the landscape of their ego. That would be very helpful. In the show notes, I'll put some resources that I recommend. One would be The End of Your World, a book by Adya Shanti, and also Eckhart Tolle's book. The Power of Now or A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose, yeah. Yeah, but um, starting with that, because you know you can't just decide to do ayahuasca this weekend. It doesn't work like that. There's a journey that will lead you to that experience when the time is right and everything opens. I just wanted to say thank you, Henrik, for your story and vividly taking us through that as well. I was right there with you and mm. Bertram for yours as well. And, and that surrender, I was just transported into both of those journeys and felt the, the kinship with the process that you both went through. And this has been a really interesting exploration. I just want to thank you guys and thank you, Michael, for having us. Yeah. Uh, thank I just want to you, say Keller. thank you, and Bertram and Michael, but I also just enjoy talking about this topic with you because it's so rewarding as well. So uh, thank you guys. Yeah, I feel a lot, uh, a lot awakening in me just having been immersed in this topic together with you guys today. I'm already feeling very grateful for that. Thank you, Keller and Hendrik and Michael. A privilege and an honor to be with you in this space. Hey there, thanks for listening. If you're ready to learn more about what psychedelic-assisted executive coaching can do for you, simply visit awakeforward.com. I'd like to recognize the talent that made this episode possible. First and foremost, thank you to my guests for sharing their time and advice so freely. Thank you to my production team at Come Alive Creative for their patience and expert advice. Last but not least, I want to thank Future Primitive for allowing me to use his song, Kinetic, which you can find on Spotify. Visit awakeforward.com slash podcast to find links to these resources and more in the show notes for this episode. Hi there. I hope you found this episode valuable. I want to take this last opportunity to invite you to consider joining the upcoming Mastermind program. If you're curious, simply go to awakeforward.com right now to learn more and apply to join. Okay, I'll see you next episode.